0: Welcome to this episode of Living Legends, brought to you by the New Farm Insider. I'm your host today, John Reitman, and our guest is Matt Schaefer. Matt, after a long and storied career in the golf business, is recently retired from Marion Golf Club. Matt, thanks for joining us today, and tell us a little bit about how you got started in the business.
1: Well, I mean, I grew up working on a farm, so... But I hated milking cows, but loved doing field work, so really it was... uh... It was uh, my dad also was really civically involved in the community, and they were building a golf course, so he kind of volunteered me to go out there and help. And so I did that, and then my guidance counselor in high school told me that there was a curriculum at Penn State for this, and so I I followed through with that and applied, and was you know a really pretty good student in high school. So it was weird. Doctor Deutsch was putting together a class. It was going to be you know as creme de creme he said it was all college graduates who were making career changes but i was the only guy in there that just graduated from high school so i was the youngest guy in my class so that's that's how i really got rolling and then of course i graduated from there and i my whole premise and everything in life i've always been an outdoorsman so you know he sent me to these great interviews like he sent me to bill burdick at Canterbury who promptly hired me but I looked around and didn't see this hunting and fishing potential there so I turned them down and so I worked in the mountains in obscurity because I was always concerned about where I was going to hunt and fish and then of course suddenly I saw the world the way it was instead of the way I wanted to be and I was starving <laughs> So, I had to start over and went to work for Paul Latchell as his assistant after being a superintendent for 13 years. In actuality, I applied for a job and I didn't even get a look, and it really upset me to no end. It was uh, Wade Hampton down in Cashiers, North Carolina, and I'd already grown into golf courses for Jeff Cornish in my early career and did a lot of shaping and dozer work for him. So, I thought, man, I'm a shoeing. And then Bill Knox, who later on in life became a really good friend, he was uh, the assistant at Augusta, and I was I was absolutely flabbergasted that he got that job. So this is funny. I talked to Dr. Deutsch, and I went up there. I was ripping mad, and Deutsch said, you don't have pedigree. And I said, what the hell is a pedigree? See, there's your problem. You don't even know what the word means. So he proceeded to tell me that my obscurity had cost me, and. I had to reinvent myself, and the existence job at Augusta was open, and Paul Ladshaw was going to be the new superintendent. I said, are you actually suggesting I start over? And he said, no, I'm telling you to start over. So that's what I did. I went down there for three years and learned. Well, I was, I was actually there for six months in Burning Tree Open, and Paul said, look, this doesn't really work for me, but it's what you came here for. So I went up there, and lo and behold, I got an interview and got the job. I'm about 99% sure. I was the same guy that had just left Scotch Valley Golf Club in the middle of nowhere, nowhere, Pennsylvania. I wouldn't have not only not gotten an interview, I probably wouldn't have got the job. So I turned it down. Much to Deutsch's and Latchell's. Surprise! And I said, well, I don't know what he knows. So I'm staying a couple more years until I learned championship golf from Paul. So that's what I did.
0: What did you learn from Latshaw that you didn't know or that you needed to propel your career?
1: You know, I mean, I, I'll never forget the very first thing I learned a whole bunch of stuff from him. But I mean, the very first thing that I learned was, I mean, he taught me tons of stuff, all the intangibles, all the things that would be It would take you a long time to learn. You get it through hard knocks, but he just taught me. It's like, you know, number one is if you can secure a job with adequate resources, then make sure you utilize all those resources and exceed your boss's expectation. You know, take one area you know, like if you go into a golf course and it's got just a tremendous amount of problems everywhere, then just take one area, preferably the greens, polish them up, make them really, really good, way beyond anybody's expectations. And then boom, he said, you'll get the rest of the money to go ahead and attack the other areas. But, you know, and then it's just like pushing the edge all the time, pushing it. You know, most people get to the edge and then they like, oh man, that's it's deep into that cavern. I'm not walking out on that edge, you know, but he teaches you, you know, to have the confidence to live on the edge, uh-huh. you know, and it's through good agronomic practices. He's a real soils guy. He, he makes sure that everything in the soil is balanced so that when you add water, it just grows. And then, you know, then he taught me about the stresses in the business and, you know, how to. You know ironically, actually taught me better than he was, I think you know, like he wasn't really good at that. I mean, he was there, he lived a job, and i I think my former life, where I was able to step away and enjoy the outdoors and I lived to hunt and fish. I didn't live to grow grass, so those things in the you know during my career have really helped me balance life.
0: Let everybody else that works for me balance theirs as well. Right. What about from a per- personnel management perspective? Well, you know, he
1: he was a tough guy, and I mean, and that was part of his that's that was part of his recipe, and it was really a generational thing. You know, I mean, he was a tough guy. He came from the coal mine region of Pennsylvania, and you know, the way you got ahead is you grind, and you know, and so, and you know, and a lot of his proteges are you know, exactly like that. And I mean, I can work with anybody, but he would always tell me I beat my best horses the hardest and I never really had that aspiration. I was more of a guy that was a, he was always a single assistant guy, just the way he was. He might have two or three, but he hung his hat on one guy. Now that's where we kind of differed. I was more of a team concept. If you spread a lot over, if you spread a little, over a lot, then everybody doesn't have a huge burden to bear. He was more you and he, and that was it, you mm. know? I think it was more of a trust issue with that generation, you know? Right. So, and so, but, you know, he, he he always told me, you know, look, it doesn't matter. you got to stay convicted to your beliefs if, you know, and sometimes he said it's going to be really, really hard. You're going to stand in front of a board, and they're going to be just, everybody's going to be. Crashing in from all sides, and you just got to rise up and say, Look, I know what I'm doing. You hired me to do this job. You got to stay the course with me. And in the end, we'll all enjoy it, reap the benefits of my knowledge, my ability, and my passion. Not I many people can do that, mind you, but I've been in that situation three or four times. And had I not been working for him, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to pull that off.
0: Throughout your career, you developed reputation as sort of a risk taker i would say and all the years i've known you that was a it's been a label that you've worn i would dare say uh proudly is is that something you picked up from him or is that something that you already had
1: yeah it's funny john like for Forever, I never really understood the dynamic between Paul and I. I mean, I did, but I didn't. And then I went to Hershey and I took personality typing, which is kind of terrible in a way, but unbelievably effective. It takes all the mystery out of life. (laughs) I can tell you that. I didn't believe it, and I took it again, and and then I was a believer. Well, when I matched up Paul's and my personality, we were like part of the 10% club, which is Actually, we're actors and the rest of the people are reactors, you know. So what is that? Well, I mean, we're early adopters. We're curious guys. And and I I think part of that's in your DNA and then it really fosters itself when you work for somebody like Paul. Now, I will say he's, he's mentored a lot of great guys. And I don't mean this in a conceited way, but I only know one other person that's worked for him that's probably fits that label. That's Sam Green. So, but there's a lot of people, and that doesn't mean the rest of them aren't good. It just doesn't it means that they're not really curious, not, they're not risk adverse. They're just very conservative. So, yeah, he and I are early adopters, no doubt about it. So that's, that's risky. Being the first in the water is always risky. That's how you enjoy true success, though, in my opinion. Yeah, the mistakes are painful, too. <laughs> you know, if you stay in the center of the road, it's pretty safe. And it's not, you know, you you get, you can only get so far, but you only fall so far. Like Paul always said, we always rise to the top, but when we crash, we really go deep into the abyss. But, you know, that's, if you're, you got to have some other character attributes to go with that. You have to be incredibly resilient. You have to be able to let, a lot of people hold on to things too long in life. I got my mom to see. She was adamant when we were growing up. And I think I was, my oldest sister and I really adhered to this. And it helped me immensely in my life As I never hold a grudge. Never, never, ever. And I don't ever, there's nobody in my life that I don't like. And I've been screwed a hundred times. But if you can leave that go, man, your life is so incredibly peaceful. So consequently, when you have a defeat, you know, you learn from it. You don't think about it. You just charge ahead to the next victory. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, but a lot of people have a lot of trouble with that. Actually, it stands in your way. I'm, now I'm a spokesperson for a couple companies. That's what I'm doing to keep myself in the industry without having to deal with politics and labor and budgets and GMs and all the other stuff that's that gives you
0: ongoing headaches from the time you retired looking back to when you started talk a little bit about how maintenance standards had changed over that period
1: it's funny you say that because i actually think i'm part of the problem there you know i mean mike davis and stanley sat down took me
0: to dinner one night and stands tech i think you're talking about probably
1: right. oh yeah he's one of my best friends <clears throat> he said listen we need you to we need to talk to you about something. You're driving standards too hard. And I said, and it's making it difficult for other people in, in the profession. And I said I said, What are you you talking to me about? Compromise and my desire to be the best. Is that what we're talking about? And Stanley said, Why do you always misconstrue everything I say? And I said, I'm not misconstruing it. I'm putting it in my terms. From my perspective, you put it in your terms. I said, he said, you got a back office, and that's not going to happen. I said, this isn't going to happen. I said, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a top ten club. I said, the message you need to send is, you know, the top ten do it differently, you know. But it's unbelievable, John. I mean, but we didn't have the tools when I started. I mean, I, I became a golf course superintendent in 1974. We were cutting fairways with seven gang mowers that had you know, eight, seven blades in the reels, pulling them with a tractor. And we were, we were hand cutting and greens, but, you know, and we were also, also, we got wrapped up in the triplex error of cutting grass on greens. Right. Our irrigation systems were electromechanical. We didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. I mean, we ran golf courses with 10, 11 guys, if you had a robust operation, but the vast majority were six or seven. And, you know, the green speeds were probably eight or nine and the guys are really sticking their neck in and These like Latchaw at Oakmont probably had them up to 12. And now, you know, 10 a half, 11 a half is common. We had actually, arguably, we might've had better chemistry. I mean, it's, but the chemistry now is really catching up, but there was a period of time in there where we didn't have good chemistry in our career because they were taking all the ones, the mercuries and the arsenics and everything off the market, but weren't replacing them with anything nearly as effective. So we didn't spray as much. Our sprayers were terrible. I mean, the equipment, the irrigation, the level of expertise was just not there in the 70s. And then it started to change in the 80s, and then it got really rolling in the 90s, and then it just went like house on fire in the 2000s. So you know, it was a host of different things, but it's but it never got easier when. When it was when I was early in it was hard because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I was hoping I would someday and I didn't have any money. And then later on it got hard because I knew what I was doing. I had a ton of money and the expectations were unrealistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Labor was hard to get and
0: you know, and numbers were thinning out and We'll be right back after a brief message from our sponsor. Pinpoint fungicide from New Farm Americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of dollar spot. Pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship. Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take-all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. We're back on Living Legends, brought to you by the New Farm Insider with our guest Matt Schaefer. As professional golf went bigger and longer, how did Marion get the open and... What did you do to make that property relevant?
1: Well, I think Marion got it because they were—they have an unbelievable membership. <laughs> I just can't even tell you how good they are and how tirelessly they work for the game of golf. And that doesn't go unnoticed in the USGA. I can assure you. And it's not the one. And some of the nicest thing about the Marion members is that they—they they do it out of the goodness of their heart, not for personal gain. I mean, just the little things like the amateur was really difficult, but that was our litmus test. But, you know, I mean, Marion members did things that nobody else did, but they didn't do it because they go, they said, we're going to be the best. We're going to do it this way. They just did it because that's who they are. They met the kids at the airport and then they took them in their personal cars. And all, by the way, they stayed at all their homes, not because they're trying to save money, but because they were people in golf that loved the game, just like them. So, I think the USGA recognized that from a logistical standpoint, and if it could be pulled off, the Marion members would figure that out. They recognized, you know, the challenges. Plus, it would have been, if the USGA was comfortable, it was was a big deal for them to go back to an old classic golf course and host the US Open, these robust golf championships at a classic golf course. And so, you know, they... The USGA Executive Committee and, and Mike Davis took the risk, and it and it panned out. Then, in regards to how we did it, oh, buddy, I had been queuing up for this my whole life. I mean, that's and a lot of guys don't want it, but those that do and don't get it, it's a shame. But you know, I just took the approach. It's like the ultimate chess match. It's me against the best in the world, and I was going to beat their skull in. So, you know, so I mean, and here's where, you know, working for Paul and having that no-holds-barred attitude really came to fruition and really helped me out. I mean, once we got that open and I started to think about it, and this is where it really paid off working for Paul. And then on top of all that, he was there for me, too, and and it was that no-holds-barred attitude of, you know— here we are. What are we going to do? How are we going to accomplish it? You know, and I'd run things by him and said, you've lost your mind. And I said, I'm trying it. So we would try things. I mean, I, look, championships are won and lost at the green. That's the bottom line. Distances of no consequence to those guys. You know, and I, I had the opportunity to walk the golf course, course with Ernie Els, and I asked him a couple questions what he didn't like. And so I logged those in my mind and thought those are the areas we're gonna work on, which, you know, are inconsistent, rough, firm, fast fairways or hard fairways, not necessarily fast. And then, you know, difficult green. So I did everything that was non conducive to the current game of golf. Like the new the new trend in bunkers were to have green you know, this manufactured sub diangular sand. And regardless if it was dry or if it was wet, it was always consistently firm. So, of course, that was going out the window. They weren't going to have that crap. So I found sand that was, you know, inconsistent, he had some rounds so that you'd get a fried fried egg lie. If we had dry conditions, you know, my biggest fear is they'd bury it in the bunker and wouldn't be able to find it, but so be it. So then I... You know, bunker faces were just really ugly, and they were gnarly, and they weren't cut, and people were worried about losing their balls in the faces. And so uh, suddenly, bunkers that had always been a place for them to make a rescue shot were out of the equation. Like, you would avoid those bunkers at all costs because you could lose your championship by going in those bunkers. They were truly hazards. Like I saw them at Oakmont on 17, they couldn't hold that green. So they just aim for the front left bunker, chip it up close, take a birdie and walk down to 18. That wasn't going to happen. Then the next thing I did is I knew the rough was going to be a big deal. So, and Mike Davis liked our rough because he'd walk around. Now he's always asking Stanley, what kind of grass is that? I've never seen that. He said, yeah, Matt found that he planted that. I don't know what he's thinking. Well, I was thinking if you landed in a four foot square seven days in a row, you'd get four different, seven different lies because we had the hodgepodge of grasses out there intentionally. And then the, and then the greens, I went to work on the greens and I'd done something nobody had ever done really. And Stanley was ripping mad, but we, I actually contemplated this is where Paul thought I had lost contact with urge. I was going to top dress the greens with concrete. And I said to him, it's mineral. (laughs) He just went insane. And I said, I'll just fracture it with an air fire, drag it around and drag it into the holes. I said, it's all mineral. He said, it'll never break down. I said, concrete breaks down. Well, we fussed around and tried it, but it made the greens a little too firm. (laughs) Anyway, but it got me thinking, you know, like, our 11th green is always the firmest green on the property, and that's because it got flooded all the time. And when you get that ultra-fine seal- sealed on top, it locks up the green. Unless it's completely uniform, then it'll drain. And that green's always like a brick, so I got this wild idea that I would top-dress all the greens with ultra-fine sand. So I was lucky. I had a manufacturer there in, uh philadelphia that was willing to try it and so he made this uber fine sand and then i i put it on the nursery oh my goodness it worked to perfection it was just like a brick i got a little nervous so i reached out to norm hummel and i sent him some and said holy crap where'd you get this and i said oh, a good friend of mine made it for me and he ran some tests He said you know this will work matt but Here's some parameters you can't exceed. Don't get it too deep. Don't get it. Break it down after the tournament. Mix it in with the rest of the mix. You'll be all right. So we started like a year and a half before the championship putting this on, and Stanley would come out. He says, Holy cats of green sand. I have normally hard to me. What are you doing? And I said, You know, just not watering, rolling, you know, doing a lot of low cutting. And all my guys started to laugh. Stanley said, What are you doing? He said, you know, this isn't like we're just having some member guest here, Matt Schaefer. You need to tell me everything. And that's when I told him, and he hit the shit button. <laughs> man. So USGA funded a study at Rutgers, and I said, well, by the time they have the results, the open will be over. So I don't really care. Well, it came back that it does what Norm said. You know, if he didn't exceed it, it would work really good. And, so I think it's, a lot of guys have adopted the practice, and it works really good. But it definitely made our greens hold up after seven and a half inches of rain. The other thing we did was we built a mower. You know, we had John Deere twenty-two inch mowers, and we just couldn't get them to cut low enough. I just wasn't happy with them. And Robert said, "Buddy, I mean, my my mechanic there was world class, still is Robert Smith." Young guy, very curious, really, an early adopter as well. So anyways, I was walking through the compound. John Deere had generously given us a brand new mower to try out. It had 18-inch reels on it. I don't know why I said this, but I said to Robert, I want that reel on that walker. And he said, well, we're going to have to do a lot of modifications. I said, that's why I bought you a lathe, make the modifications, build me a mower. So he did. And, oh, my goodness, John, did it ever cut. So, anyways, we built nine more, and they never knew it. I mean, we were ordering these heads. I don't know what they think we were doing with them, but we were ordering them from John Dude, And that's one of the advantages to being at a great club like Marion. has yes, a resource <laughs> you can do that. And uh, so, anyways, everything was good until somebody like Paul Romino comes in your shop and says, what are those? I said, I what do you mean, what are those? These are two E's? And he said, that's not a 22-inch head. And I said, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, Robert had done a masterful job. He cut the frame and everything down. Everything worked just perfect. And he said, that's not an 18 that's an 18-inch mower. He says, that upsets me, you know. I, I want those. I'm going to call John Deere. And he said, whoa, 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 back up the bus, brother. There isn't any. I said, we built these. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? And I said, I mean, we actually fab, fabbed them up here, and then we had our we had our one well, our bed knife company made us bed knives for it that were they're called the Marion knives. I don't even know if they're in production yet. They're expensive and they're custom built for us because they don't drag. So, anyways, with Robert's help, we had a mower that would cut down silly glove. So I've never told anybody this, but I guess there's no repercussions now. Robert knew it. Once that rain came, I told him we're going down. But I said, you leave the height of cut on the mower the way it is, because I said those greens are a little receptive. So they're going to think they're slow, but we're going to make them fast. And that's what we did. Then the other thing that happened that, I had less to do, but God had everything to do with it. That rain actually made us. I mean, it was seven inches, but it was in the you know middle of the week. So that golf course is an old golf course. It drains, but it takes time for it to drain. You know, we had XGD drainage in the greens top down. What happened was that golf course changed every single day. They could never get... They never could get a feeling for that golf course. Like on Thursday it was receptive. On Friday it was semi-receptive. On Saturday is more receptive and on Sunday, forget it. So they they weren't, you know, those guys are the best in the world. You give them consistent conditions regardless of the challenges. If they get their feet underneath them, they're off to the races. So I think that really helped us too. And everything just lined up and get this buddy. We were the, we, that was 2013. I, what is that? Five years. There's been 20 majors. I'm 90% sure we're the last major to protect par. So I wouldn't want to do it again. Cause like <laughs> I were together afterwards and he said, son of a bitch. I've never seen him like it. He said, look, I'm getting old. I can't really do the golf course. I said, I can't walk with you. I said, Paul, don't worry about it. I'm going to have a cart you can tag along with us. I'll have Romino driving it. You can just, and there'll be two other passenger seat in there for other guys to ride with you. Cause I don't know how many more of these you're going to do. So get to ride with you. It's a monumental, monumental privilege. And then I said, come down for two days and then go home and watch it on TV. He stayed for the whole damn thing. So, because you just all fired up, you know, and, and, uh, we talked afterwards, and he said, what do you think? And I said, I'm glad I don't have to do another one. <laughs> I don't think I could replicate that performance. And I said, it about killed me. I had 10 days. I slept like 16 hours. I'd laid down. My mind was just going like 1,000 miles an hour. I couldn't sleep. And it took me like three weeks to recover, at least maybe five. I just was out. My autoimmune system was burnt had started all sorts of health issues
0: now in a situation like that superintendent always has that person who was your right hand who fit that bill for you
1: that was john zimmers he just you know we're really really good friends he had worked for paul he had hosted championships he just has a unbelievable persona he just john's really really good And then on top of everything else, he just seems to have a feeling for people's feelings. It's really weird how he does that. And he could calm me down when it got amped up. And then there was one afternoon I was really ripping mad at somebody. And Mr. Marucci, my greens chairman, was with me the whole time, too. And, well, he would walk the course. We'd walk 18 holes in the morning. I'd walk the whole golf course with John and Mr. Marucci. And this one morning, I was just pissed off at the world, and I, this one kid was doing something incredibly stupid, so I flashed out at him. Mr. Marucci went to grab me, and John said, no, he needs to vent. Let him go. This kid will recover, and then, you know, I mean, it was just, he just knew how to get me to relax, knew how to have me, and then there's times when, you know, they put you in a corner, and you have to make a decision, and you're uncertain so you just take a minute and you go over and you say hey John I need to ask you a question what do you think and he'll say what are you thinking?" and then and I'll tell him and he said what's your basis for that thought process and sometimes he'd say no I don't think you should go that way no I wouldn't go that way and it worked it worked every time because he's walked a mile in your shoes he'd worked for his father or for, for Paul Sr he, he understood that the critical mass for Marion. He really liked Mr. Marucci and and understood who he was and how that he just was stellar. He stayed at my house. He rode back and forth with me. Yeah, man, he's the real deal. I'd done it for him twice and he did it for me twice. So that was nice.
0: Speaking of that Latshaw fraternity, you've always spoken very highly of Paul B. when you retired from Marion, Paul made a return there. Talk to us a little bit about your relationship with him and how important it's been and just just the closeness of that fraternity that his father created.
1: Yeah, I mean, Paul and I, you know, we're about diametrically opposite, which is actually something that's really good and one of the reasons I think that we are so close. I mean, You don't ever want to surround yourself with people that think just like you or you don't get diversity in your actions. And so I always, I would always ask him, particularly anything technical. I got to tell you, John, I'm not positive there's a smarter superintendent in the business than Paul B. There could be, but I haven't met him. So he, and he's so incredibly thorough. Like I mean, I fly more off the seat of my pants, and he's, and he's way, way more um, thorough and thought provoked, and a researcher, and you know, he's uh, he's just real. And then he's just has a mind that's like a steel trap, man. Once it in sits in there, it's in there forever. So. For me, and he's more cautious than I am. So you know, when you're getting ready to do something silly, risky, you know, he's a really good guy to run it by. And you know, you'll say, I'll say to him, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this," and you'll hear him laugh a little. He said, "Why don't I look into that a little bit more for you or something?" I said, "I'd oh, be great." So he's, uh, you know, and then on top of everything else, he's just incredibly thorough. I mean, he never skips a. I that's never dotted and a T that's never crossed. So with this project that was coming up at Marion, they, they needed somebody like him. I mean, it really precipitated my retirement for a couple of reasons. Number one is I didn't want to build it and retire. I just didn't think that was fair to the next group of people. You know, The next superintendent they hired, the first time they had a problem, I know the first words out of his mouth would have been, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. So I really felt compelled that the next person that was going to run Marion through the next championship or two needed to be the guy that did the project. The other thing too is I'm a really touchy feely kind of guy and it's always worked out for me. But at this, you know, when you get a little older, particularly in my case, you start to get apprehensive about that new, no holds barred attitude, you know, so and this really wasn't my money, and it was a tremendous amount of money. I mean, had I been in the fifties, nobody was my fifties, and I was going to be at Marion for another fifteen years, nobody would have touched that project. I would have done it so then then the club came to me and said, "We need some names we We want you to recommend who you want to take your place and I thought, I said, well, "Look, that's awful nice of you to make that." available to me to do that but i said i don't really think that's what should happen i said why don't i give you a bunch of people that i know can do the job and then you pick the person that you think you want to do it and based on your their personality and what you're looking for and they said, we want somebody that's not like you. (laughs) And I said, is that because you're tired of me or what? They said, no, we just think change is good. And I said, I agree. So we started looking for people like that. And I came up with four or five. And then, of course, you know, people got wind of it. And they got names from everywhere. And so they interviewed them. And then, uh, you know, and I think it was critical that they had a high profile superintendent because they interviewed some really stellar guys that just weren't quite there or weren't. I don't know exactly what happened, but everybody they interviewed put it this way. They could definitely do the job. And they chose him. I think I think it didn't hurt that he was there before Uh and he understood the membership. Having somebody that they already had had and they liked and they trusted was a mighty big deal.
0: Now on the on the other end of your career, I know you've always been a an outdoorsy type. What are you spending your time doing these days?
1: Well, I mean, I have a beautiful home in Florida. And we have a nice little home in Pennsylvania that we just remodeled. But I mean, we bought him a camper, you know, we bought a big old fifth wheel. So we're going to pound around the United States and Rena likes to the outdoors too. So, and I mean, when you're a golf course superintendent, it's a family affair. But I mean, you, I'd never be where I was without her. I mean, we moved 11 times, we lived in six different states. I mean, that's hard. And, and, uh, she, uh, so she, I give her some undivided attention. I wasn't, it was funny, John. I wanted, I wanted to step away from championship golf right after the open. I mean, I, I wanted to go someplace for, oddly enough, I was 60. I wanted to go somewhere for another eight years. And she just said, nope, we're not moving anymore. I'm done moving. The last move is the retirement move. So I just decided to, I had to figure out what I wanted to do. So I didn't want to be a consultant because I watched Paul in that whole process and he had done some wonderful things, but there was times he still got a bad rap for being a, the guy that cost a guy's job. when in fact, that guy cost himself a job, but he ended up being the, Person that got blamed. That wasn't going to be me. I wasn't interested in that. My dad told me one time, you know, there's only two kinds of consultants. I said, What's that? He said, Good ones and successful ones. And I said, What's the difference? He said, A successful one tells you what you need, want to hear, and a good one tells you what you need to hear. And I said, Yeah, I'm not going to be that guy. I'd be a good one. I get, I just, and I have a pretty. Some might say abrasive personality. I get right to the point. I just didn't want to do that. So I just racked my brain and I decided I was going to become a spokesperson for companies. It has been done, but not a lot. And so I went to a business man, a business developer, and he and I spitballed it around to find the perfect price to charge without somebody feeling gouged and then But by the same token, they didn't feel like they needed to beat you to death to get their
0: values. How much time do you spend in the boat?
1: Uh, Pretty much. I mean, yesterday we were out for two hours. This afternoon, she and I are going out fishing probably for two or three hours. I'd say when we're here and it's nice, maybe 10, 12 hours a week.
0: What's the largest bass you've ever caught?
1: uh probably 10 pounds i'd love to catch a 15 pounder or 14 they're probably in the lake but i mean that was my goal for a long time now it's just to sit there and have fun and i don't even care if i catch anything so i do but it's not the ends all means all i like to go hunting and i almost never shoot anything so it's just more about being outside being in the woods and you know life is grand i mean i'm Thompson around with projects, but you know, it's funny when you retire, what you accomplished in the in a day when you were working might be what you accomplish in a week in retirement. And somehow you justify it. And I still get up early, but I read for three hours and, uh, sleeping like a baby and losing weight, man, I'm telling you, it's a hard job. Superintendents have really hard jobs. It's hard on them. It's hard on their families. It's just a hard job. You gotta love it. And the compensation aggravation ratio isn't there for most guys. You know, I mean, they could. I mean, holy hell, man! You probably make more money driving tractor trailer coast to coast. You can knock down a hundred thousand. Not that those guys don't have a stressful life, but they certainly don't have the stress level of golf course superintendent does.
0: Any any truck any truck drivers out there, please direct your emails to Matt Schaefer, not to me. <laughs> yeah.
1: They have they have a hard life too, don't get me wrong, but you know, and they should make what they make. But nonetheless, you know, golf course superintendents are constantly looking for labor if you think about it. Most of their labor force turns over seventy five, eighty percent a year. So all they do is teach and teach and teach they got to lead up, down, sideways in 60 seconds. You know, they're, the vast majority are underfunded, and they deliver unbelievable results. It's a labor of love. You know, and they, they try to juggle their kid's life, their wife's life, their life, the golf course life. I mean, man, it's tough.
0: Looking back, what would you do differently?
1: <laughs> it's funny, a lot of people ask me that, absolutely nothing. I mean... I, you know, what made me really good when I got money was that I had worked so long without money. So I could take what one guy could take a million dollars and do with, I could make that million dollars do 1.2 million. You know, I mean, I was just so accustomed to not wasting a thing that I was just, I mean, I, I, some of the habits that I had when I was first a superintendent at 21 with no money were the exact same habits i had when i was 60 and had a robust budget and the members would appreciate that you know and there was when we were sure to help i wasn't above going out and cutting rough in fact i liked it and all my guys are still that way that i taught i always say to them, you want to relieve your stress you go out and cut greens or you go out and cut fairways you go out and cut rough and then you know and i you know we And the cool thing was, like, Robert was my mechanic. He was from Tyrone, the same. Or, no, he was from Everett, which is a little town not far from where I was born and raised. So he came from a really conservative background. So he was the same way. He would save stuff. We'd save parts. And, you know, people come in our barn and say, what in the hell are you saving all those old bed knives for? And would say, oh, man, they make great edges for buckets. (laughs) So when you those types of that mentality and not having anything and making it work when you do have a lot it really works not being overstaffed I see I go to operations now that we have on Lincoln I can see in the people's operations I always I can see some things that I'm over I'm just amazed at not saying they're bad operators just amazed so you know those those tendencies serve you well later on in life i mean paul senior was that way too he was uber conservative he really was so um but he could spend money he could burn it boy i mean to tell you he could really spend it so but he always got results i don't know i wouldn't do anything different i mean i think you know and I don't mean this, and I don't know that you should write this, but I'll tell you because you should know. Is You know, people like John Zimmers and Paul B., and I'm sure there's lots of other guys, when you start out at that pace in life, you know, right out, and bam, right into high-profile golf. Like, if you look at John and Paul, you look at their careers. Those boys didn't walk up to it, man. They they went right from high school baseball, and they stood right in home plate, you know, and the big leagues. They went right to it. Well, that has a tendency to really wear on you and burn you down. You know, I look at it, you know, I was 33 when I jumped into championship golf at Augusta for Paul. I'd already hunted in Montana and Idaho, and I had fished in Quebec, and and I had backpacked all over the United States, and I would camped with my wife, and we'd have an exciting day on a lake catching bass or floating down the Juniata. And those guys never got that opportunity. So, you know, I wouldn't trade that either. You, know, you got to have life balance. Got to have it. It's hard on you if you don't. I'd walk right away and go fishing.
0: Well, there you have it, Matt Schaefer. We appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure and a, a treat talking to you. Well, I'll tell you what. It's been I'm, I've been truly blessed to. Uh, you
1: know, somebody asked me how. What's the How'd you become so successful? I said, oh, it's pretty simple, you know I mean? My parents gave me a work ethic that's second to none. My mom taught me never to hold a grudge. I had an unbelievable university where I went to Penn State with the best teachers in the world. I had unbelievable mentors and then had a phenomenal wife. So if anybody gets those four dynamics, they're gonna be successful.